Good morning. Uh, we're in a year of talking about uh, living drenched and how to live drenched. And I felt like it was very important during this year to hear the voices of some people that I know that's what their life is. They do live drenched. And I mentioned this, I said this in early service, I'll say it again, and I'll probably say it a few more times before I cross the Jordan. Um, there's probably, well, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go there, but let me just say one of the most significant people in my life in teaching me how to live drenched is Bruce Coble. Would you welcome Bruce Coble? Thank you, buddy. Amen. Thank you, Ronnie. Uh, I probably won't get to my, in my testimony, the part where I met Ronnie and Margaret, but it was significant. So uh, that'll be probably another time, though. So um, let's, uh, if you'd stand, let's read some of the scriptures and get right into this. We ready? Okay, let's start, Kurt. The law was brought in us that the trespasses might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? You know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We look to you in fulfilling the scriptures in our life. We thank you that we have a new life. The old life has been buried. The old nature has been crucified. We thank you for your work. Now help us with your word. Help us to understand. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Okay, this book right here, our Bible, is God's testimony. It's about him. And what I want to share with you today is what God has done in my life. It's really God's testimony. God, our creator, God, the author of this book, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired. It's God breathed. He's the one. And so it's his story and what he's done in this universe and what he's done in us. And we need to know the whole story. And that's what I'm going to try to share with you a little bit today is the whole story. Now, I won't share with you the whole my whole testimony, because I know you're hungry. <clears throat> Plus, I'm tempted at all points in hunger, as you are. But the whole story, the whole story. And it's a story about life and death, really, isn't it? The life in God and what he does for us. And we're very familiar about the life of Christ and his crucifixion, death, and burial, but the whole story. Um, 1987, I was laying in bed one night, and I could hear a gurgling noise in my chest. Um, and I didn't pay that much attention to it, because your body's like mine, it makes all kind of noises. Uh, so, 
but the next day, as I was uh, about my day, uh, I could taste blood in my mouth, and I thought, you know, did I bite my tongue? What's going on here? And I just didn't pay much attention to it. And like most uh, manly men, uh, it'll go away. And so the next night, I was laying in bed, and I could hear the gurgling noise again, and uh, Jill could hear it. And she said, what's going on? Um, that's not right. And I, uh, the next day when I got up, I could taste blood in my mouth. And she said, you're going to the doctor. And um, it got my attention now because that wasn't normal. And uh, having blood in my mouth. Uh, so I went to the eye, ear, nose, and throat specialist. And I wasn't there five minutes and him looking in my throat. And he picked up the phone and called the surgeon. Now, I'm listening now. <laughs> this is starting to get my attention. And um, through a series of two surgeons and scopes down my nose into my lungs and things like that, they found a growth down in my lung that was bleeding. And that gurgling noise was blood that was bubbling up through my lung. And as soon as they found that, they said, we're checking you in the hospital now. And I said, yes, sir. And so in I go. And they're getting me all prepped and, and that. Um, and they come in and said, if that thing lets go in there, uh, there's going to be a lot of blood. And so we're going to put a port into your arm. Is that what you call it, a port? I don't know. And so they came in with this needle, and the needle was rather large. And I said, let me take a look at that thing. And so they sure. And so they gave it to me, and I could look through it like a pipe. <laughs> and, um, and they inserted it into my arm and said, you know, if you need blood, we need to put a lot of blood into you. And I went, I'm listening. Uh, <laughs> and they started giving me medicine with a lot of codeine so I wouldn't cough. And I laid in bed that night and I thought about this. And the next day, the surgeon came in, Dr. Bill Frist at Vanderbilt, and he sat down at my desk and he said, I need to tell you the whole story. This is what's going to take place. This is what I'm going to do to you. And he was a great guy, very friendly, very warm. Took out his pen and his pad, and he drew what he was going to do. And he said, I'm going to start up above your left shoulder blade, and I'm going to make an incision like a J all the way down, and then below your shoulder blade and through. And then we're going to open you up like that, and I'm going to go in between your ribs. And I'm going to cut out the lower lobe of your left lung. We can't take the the growth out of your lung. It, you, you can't do that in surgery. But on your left lung, you have three lobes in it, and we're going to take that left one out, and the bottom one on the left side, and then uh, those other two will expand somewhat, and you won't have any problems with breathing. Your lungs have more capacity than you need. And um, he got my attention. And then he said, we're going to close you back up and put two tubes in your back, and then um, your chest will drain for a while until that all heals. And then when that stops draining, we'll take the tubes out. And once your intestinal tract starts working again, then you can go home. This is the story. Any questions? No. It's been a long time since I've been to medical school. You know, <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Dr. Kildare on TV. And for those of you who can go find that, but, and, which is an interesting name for a doctor. But... Um, I laid in bed that night, and I did ask myself, um, are you ready, Bruce? And it was more than in the surgery, and you know it. And I thought, well, I could go home to be with the Lord.
And because I was saved then, and I, I thought, yeah, I'm ready. And thinking about some of the stuff I might miss, but you know, if it's my time, I am ready. You know? So the next day, they come in and get me and, and prep me and put me on the gurney and down the hallway. And as we went down the hallway, I started to cough, and I started to cough up blood. And that gurney started to move faster. In fact, they started to trot. <laughs> that got my attention. And uh, the next thing I remember was waking up in the recovery room. And the um, doctor came in the next day and said, um, it worked. We got that out. And it's off to the lab. And, uh, but we think everything's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, and then uh, after a few days, my chest stopped draining all that. It's interesting watching fluid come out of your body going into plastic things. And just watching that. You know, kind of, okay, here. And uh, so um, it finally stopped, and uh, they came in and um, jerked those tubes out, and I, they felt like they were about six foot long. And uh, I made another mistake. I asked, let me look at those tubes. <laughs> and they put them in front, and I, ooh, bad choice, Bruce. Uh, it wasn't very nice. And uh, so, uh, and a few days later, and um, through some struggles and this and that, uh, everything started working, and uh, they sent me home after nine days. I know, mm. that was something. And it went fine, and a couple of weeks later, I went to Dr. Bill Frist's office, sat down there, and he said, how you doing? I said, I'm pretty sore. And he said, well, good, that's normal. He said, anything else? And I said, no. He said, well, you're fine. Uh, lab results came back, and it was benign, and uh, you should be fine. You sure you don't have any other questions? And I just sat there like I was talking to a friend, and I said, no, sir. And he said, you don't need to see me again. And I walked out and, and never saw him again. That man he put his hand inside my body. And he had removed the thing that was going to cause my death. And he let me live. And with the privilege and honor and praise, a few years later, I stepped into a voting booth and I voted for Dr. Bill Frist as a U.S. Senator. I owed him a debt. And I was happy to do it. And I wanted to give thanks, and I wanted to give praise. And I kind of watched him in the U.S. Senate, and I believe he did a good job. He was a good man, good integrity. And they started talking about him running for president, and I got excited. I thought I could step in there and vote for the man that saved my life. And what a president I think he'd make. Because I knew what he did for me. He put his hand in my body. And he took death out of my body and gave me life. As temporary as it is, is on this earth, he gave me life. Well, he decided not to run for president, as you know. And the last I heard, he was in Africa doing surgery. But you know, when he sat down and talked to me in that hospital room, I wanted to know the whole story. Because it was my life. And so it is with the scriptures. Our desire here and all the staff is for you to know the whole story in Christ. For you to know about life and death and the plans and the thoughts that God has for you. Because he thinks about you all the time. Steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. 
Jesus Christ ascended, and he sits at the right hand interceding for us, praying for us all the time. And so I thank the Lord for who he is and what he's done. Now, we've read these scriptures out of the fifth and sixth chapter of the book of Romans, and I'd like to tell you the whole story. Especially in the book of Romans, when Paul wrote to the church at Rome, the church at Rome was made up of Jews and Gentiles, as were most of the churches outside of Israel. Jews had gotten saved, especially on the day of Pentecost, were sprinkled all over the place, and they started to share Christ, and Gentiles were accepting the Lord everywhere. And so there was a mix in the church at Rome of Jews and Gentiles. And Paul is addressing them about there's no difference between a Jew and a Gentile, that all were born into sin. There's no special people, and the Jews are not special. They do have a wonderful thing and a blessing from God in that they received God's word and were able to share God's word with others. But all are born into sin. And so as he shares with them, and he starts in that first chapter, and he talks about Jesus Christ being raised from the dead, and it shows that he's the son of God with power because of the resurrection. He goes on to say that he's not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, for it's the power under salvation to all that will believe, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. It's the gospel for everyone. He goes on to say that men knew that there is a God, that God has plainly revealed himself to all men. But God, men would not honor him. They would not give him praise. They would not give him thanks as God. And even though they knew he was there, they would go on and live their own way. And God let them do it. And man went deeper and deeper into sin until he even knew that it was going to cost him his life and separation from God forever. And he did it anyway and enjoyed taking others with him. But he goes on to say that God leads us to repentance by his goodness. And to tell the Jews that they are not special because of the law, and the law does not make them righteous. If they were of their father Abraham like they claimed, then they would live like Abraham lived. And Abraham lived by faith in God. His faith made him righteous. He believed God, and he came into a wonderful relationship with God. And God said, I am going to be your shield, Abraham, and your very great reward. I think about that every now and then. Because we are Abraham's children, his seed, because we believe God through the Lord Jesus Christ and it's counted unto us as righteousness. God is your shield. God is your very great reward. And so he said, all men have been born into sin by one man's sin, Adam. Sin came into the world, and sin brought death, and death reigned. Therefore, all men are born sinners, and all men are condemned. But though there be many trespasses, many sins, through one man's choice, one man's actions, all men can receive the gift of grace and be justified, which is a wonderful word. It means you're innocent before God because your sin has been placed on Christ by one man's actions for many transgressions. Many can have the gift through faith and be justified, be innocent before God and come into a relationship with God, a close relationship. That's what righteousness is about, is a close relationship to God through one man's actions. 
And you Jews, you've been given the law just to show how sinful you are. Because when the law comes, sin even grows more. But where there is sin, grace abounds even more. And as some would ask, well then, why can't we just sin more? Because we'll receive that much more grace. And Paul starts to explain it, basically saying, you don't understand. Because if you are in Christ, you've died to sin. Sin is no longer your master. Your master is the Lord Jesus Christ. And with all of his grace and all of his love, he's your master now. You serve a new master. And as we've read out of Romans in the sixth chapter, then it goes on to say, if you've been baptized in Christ, in other words, if you've let the Holy Spirit baptize you in Christ by accepting Christ as your Savior, confessing that he is the Christ and in your heart believing that he rose from the dead, you're saved. And when you're baptized into Christ, you are baptized into his death. And if you are baptized into his death, you're raised up into a life with him. And if you go on to the next few verses, it says it again. If you die with Christ, you live with Christ. And that's what living drenched means. You live with Christ. Because he does the work, we just yield to him. When they first started to call Christians, Christians in Antioch Christ-like, it was a derogatory term. The Christians really were called and called each other believers and disciples. They were disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, students of the Lord Jesus Christ, followers and believers in him, learning and growing in him, in this brand new life. And so it's Christ who does the total drenching of our lives, washing all of our sin away, and giving us a brand new life, in fact, even placing his Holy Spirit in us to help us to follow him, to help us understand spiritual things. You will never understand spiritual things with a fleshly mind. You have to have the Spirit of God to understand spiritual things. And God gives it to us. And then he can baptizes us as the Holy Spirit. This is the life that we have that is called drenched, intimately, closely, righteously walking with God, knowing that we've been forgiving, honoring him, praising him, a life of thanks to him, and receiving all of the benefits of having him as our shield and our very great reward. All of it that comes through faith, it's your faith that connects you to God. It's not your works. Your works is just a fruit, a product of your relationship. And the works and the fruits, they come and they go, but the relationship stays all of the time. And that's what's so wonderful about our Lord. That's why we find all of our fulfillment in him. Let the words of my mouth and my meditation of my heart be pleasing unto you, O Lord. I'm talking to somebody that's right there with me. And so this is our life. And this is what I discovered when I took Christ as my Savior, accepted him, and believed it. So, as many of you know in here, I grew up in Detroit, and I won't tell the same old joke anymore. And so, um, because that's where my family was. So, uh, and I, you know, I thought I had a fairly a normal childhood until I met all of you. 
And I found out <laughs> there is no normal childhood. There's stuff that happens in all of our families, doesn't it? In all, all of us. There is no lever to beaver, you know? My mom didn't dress like her and have her hair done. She did her own hair and, and that kind of thing. And then she did somebody else's when she bought a wig, but that's another story. Uh, and so, um, and we went to church some, not much. My folks would send my brother and I to Sunday school sometime. And all I remember is a Baptist church at the end of our street, and they were, just, they were nice people. And sometimes they went and, and that, but it just didn't mean a whole lot to me. They were just nice people. I can't remember anything of the stories or, or that, um, but they were nice. And I, so I thought being a Christian just meant trying to be nice, and I found out I couldn't do it. <laughs> I wasn't nice all the time, a lot of the time. And... Um, so it just didn't take root in me at all. But then a, a, a th- my brother got sick, and it started to overshadow the entire family. Uh, he was 11, I was 13. He got a respiratory disease called uh, Wegner's disease, and uh, it took him quite a while to find it, and uh, he ended up being one of the youngest to ever have it, uh, and he ended up on all kinds of medication and cortisone. He was in and out of the hospital constantly, uh, for the next nine or ten years, and uh, it would just overshadowed everything. And so I was just doing the normal school thing and playing a lot of sports and um, working when I turned 15 to try to make a little money to try to get an old car and, and things like that. Um, so I was on my own quite a bit, but that didn't bother me. Um, but my brother couldn't do too much and in and out of school because he was back in the hospital. Um, but it started to build a lot of tension in our home and because my dad didn't tell anybody in the family that the disease was terminal and they had no cure. So uh, he was getting tighter and tighter and drinking more and he had a hair trigger temper in that so sometimes I would just avoid him Um, but I had no idea the pressure he was under. And then Jill and I met uh, and got married when we were 21. And a couple of months later, my brother passed away. Um, And it just devastated the family. When death visits your family, things change. It has an impact on you. And most of you have experienced it in one form or another with a grandparent or a parent or a spouse or a child. It changes everything. And without the Lord, it's extremely difficult to handle. It can drain the life and the hope out of you. And I just pushed all my emotions deep down inside me because I just thought I was going to explode. I melt down. I didn't know what to do. And um, we had all these great big policemen, and they carried the casket. I'd never seen policemen cry before. I'd been around them my whole life. They were just rough and tumble guys and all this kind of stuff. And I I never saw this side of them. Or my mother clutching the casket and saying, my baby's dead. And I just pushed it all down inside me because I had no idea what to do. I had nowhere to go. 
I couldn't do anything, and that's the way I was brought up. You work hard, you make your own destiny, you make your own life. And uh, because that's all my parents knew. Um, and then about two weeks after the funeral, I was sitting at our dining room table, and as Jill was preparing dinner, I was thinking about the funeral, and I just lost it. And I wept, and I wept, and I wept. And I told Jill, I said, there's nothing I can do. He's dead. He's gone. And I couldn't do anything to help. And I realized for the first time in my life at 22 that I did not have control. And I learned it lesson after lesson after that. You don't have control of your life. A lot of things happen. But you don't plan. Some you may deserve, some you may not deserve. Uh, but they come your way. That's all part of life. And I didn't realize there's an enemy out there that wants to destroy us. And so I just went to jello on the inside, kept a, a tough exterior, but inside I was fearful and insecure because I don't have control. I don't have control. Well, after being laid off of a job there in Detroit and watching my folks were just unraveling and really hard on them, and that and my dad finally retired and mom and dad moved down to Hickman County, Keg County down in the middle of nowhere in Tennessee where my dad grew up. Um, it's small place, and, um, but he just had to get out of Detroit and out of the memories and things like that. Um, and I decided I'm done with Detroit. I was filled with tension in that and had a real edge to myself and a chip on my shoulder. Um, and I told Jill, I'm leaving Detroit. I got to get out of here. I'm, I'm going to move to Nashville. Um, Nashville's just a little town. And back in 71, guys, it was. Some of you know that. And it was great. I loved it. <laughs> I-65 stopped at Harding Road. <laughs> and uh, really, and there was no you know, professional sports here or that. Uh, but it was great. You could drive downtown on the weekends, and it wasn't crowded. And then, and I, this is, I could drive 20 minutes, and I'm out in the country. And, and 20 minutes, you know, in Detroit, I was just at the next deli or bar. And, uh, it, you know, and so we, and Jill said she wasn't going to go. We were going to get a divorce. And then she decided to go, and she cried all the way down here. And she was just here a few days, and she liked it. And we rented a house over, um, near the cemetery and Thompson Lane and uh, within two weeks we both got a job uh, and as the months went on we both received promotions um, we ended up buying a house in a very desirable suburb of Nashville and the house was twice as big as both she and I grew up in we were doing well I had a new Pontiac out in the driveway that the company provided um, Things were going good for Bruce and Jill. And one night in January of 1971, I was laying in bed, and I was thinking about this. I'm living in a house I never thought I'd live in. You know, I've got this big Pontiac out in the driveway. we got some money in the bank. Uh, we can do some things. Uh, things are going really well for us. Um, and I felt that I, I hadn't earned it all, that something else was going on. I just had this feeling. 
And I started to think about the universe, which the, the planets and all that have always fascinated me, to this point that there is no end of the universe. How can something be with no end? How can something be you know, infinite? Um, and how do we function in our bodies? And, and as I was laying there, this thought just crept into my mind. If there is a God and I don't acknowledge him, I'm a fool. Where in the world did that come from? I hadn't been in church in years. I don't watch those guys on TV or listen to them on the radio or things like that. If they rode a motorcycle, I might listen to them. And, um, and that, but this, and I, and I said to myself, Bruce, if there really is a God and you don't acknowledge him, you are a fool. If he's really there and you ignore him, so I rolled over in bed and I said to Jill, uh, let's go to church tomorrow. And she was quiet and then she said, yes, I'll go. And what I didn't know is that two weeks before that, watching Billy Graham on TV, my wife had knelt in front of the TV and accepted Christ as her savior. What a God, what a God. That's one reason I don't mock TV preachers. My wife got saved by one. And I don't care what the rest of them say. And we went to church the next day with about two or three inches of snow on the ground. And no, hardly anybody in church. <laughs> Where is everybody? <laughs> but, you know, we learned how to drive. Detroit's flat, too. It's a lot easier to drive in the snow there. So... And the preacher preached about Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. And he just talked about the promises of God. And then they took us, as the Baptists do, especially back then, and it was wonderful. They put us in a young couples class. And I'm listening, and the guy's talking about Jesus being the Lord of your life. And I'm thinking, wow, Lord of your life, master of your life. I don't know. But we kept going, and I kept listening, and I, I felt the conviction and the drawing power of God so strong in my life. Bruce, are you going to acknowledge me or not? Are you going to acknowledge me or not? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Psalms 10.4. In his pride, the wicked do not seek him. In his mind, there is no room for God. Bruce. And finally, I said, I believe. So I asked the preacher to come over to the house because I had questions for him. I wanted to know the whole story. I don't want preacher talk. I want somebody that worked, will speak directly to me. I wanted to know the whole story. And I started drilling him with questions. And mainly, you know, why did my brother die at 20? He couldn't answer some of them. Some he could. And, of course, he was limited because I didn't know any scripture. But his spirit and his trust in God and his confidence that God would keep his promises and that scripture is all true is just so strong, and I was drawn to it. And within a few Sundays, I gave my life to Christ. And accepted him as my Lord and Savior. And you see, I was baptized into Christ. 
And that day I died. And I was given a brand new life. I was born again, just the way Jesus said to Nicodemus. I was, and I was. I instantly started to think different. Wanting to act different. Because I felt Christ inside me and around about me. I really believed with all my heart that Christ would never leave me or forsake me. That Christ is with me everywhere. There wasn't a face, place on the face of this earth that I could go that Christ wasn't already there. And I'm taking him with me. He's this I mean, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. I found that to be true. You know, I'm no brave guy. You guys, some of you think I am maybe on some of these trip, mission trips and stuff like that. I, I got, I'm just following God. He's there. You know? That's all. And so Jill's and my life started to change, and it changed drastically. Our relationship changed drastically. And we started to believe. And we were at church, especially me, <laughs> every time. And I'd go Sunday morning and Sunday night and on Wednesday nights because I wanted to learn the Bible. I started to read it. And this is good. And I could see what was happening. And I started to sense it. I, could, I felt somewhat like David who, who said, Lord, search me. Know my ways. See if there's any evil way in my heart. Create in me a clean heart that I might like sinners, lead sinners to you. But it's got to be my heart. You've got to do something in me first, Lord. And so I was learning this stuff and, and trying to share it at work and at the church. I'd go on visitation on Thursday nights. The preacher was a little afraid of me um, because most of the time I was the only one that showed up. And they'd hand us the visitor's cards. And I went with him the first few times, and then there were a lot, so he gave me some. Go, go visit these people, Bruce. Yes, sir. I was glad to do it, wanted to do it, because I had the greatest message in the world. Jesus Christ is real, and I want to acknowledge him. I want to give him praise. I want to give him thanks for who he is. And I want you to know it, too. I didn't know I was becoming a minister of reconciliation. It just it was happened. It happens naturally to you if you've died and rose up in a new life and are living with him, and you want to please him out of 2 Corinthians 5. We are compelled. It's, he's, got, he's got a hold of us. And in his presence, he's got a hold of you. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. What are you going to do with that? Well, we want to please him. Just the way I enjoyed pressing that button to vote for Dr. Bill Frist. I, I was so thankful and appreciative. And so wanting to respond. And so off I went. And all I did was tell the people, let me tell you what Jesus Christ has done for me. I just gave a, a brief testimony. They all came back. Everybody I visited came back to the church. You know why? They wanted to know the real whole story. That's what they wanted to know. So I talked about Christ. Yeah, yeah we got a softball team in Sunday school. You can eat hot dogs and chips on Wednesday nights. But let me tell you about Christ. We'd been trying to have children for five years. Nothing worked. Had all the tests and everything. Jill had had a miscarriage. And I come home from work one day and Bruce, I'm pregnant. I had to acknowledge God. Give him thanks. Give him praise. As you can see, acknowledging God is an extremely important part of my life because that's how I got saved.
acknowledged he's there. Acknowledge his work. Acknowledge it happened to me in my heart. Acknowledge the scriptures are true. Acknowledge him. Acknowledge him. And I've used that as a, in the, as a theme my entire Christian walk, and it's worked. I started to share it work, and I don't have time to go into all the things that happened on my job. Um, but it ended up praying with men there. We started a Bible study before the doors of the dealership opened up. I got a chance for a promotion there to be a used car manager. And then they offered me a, the managership of the GMC motorhome division there, which was going to be small at the beginning. And the Lord told me, don't, don't do the used car thing. So I went in there because the most important thing in my life was obeying God, which caused me to repent a lot. It caused me to ask forgiveness of people a lot because I would lose my temper. I would get into the flesh. And I knew it every single time. I've never, never had an excuse for my sin. Never. I knew it. But I was so angry or whatever, I'd press in with my sin. <laughs> and I became less than a conqueror, by the way. And so I repented. I asked people there to forgive me for things I would say. And then I made it a point to try to be a witness and to talk to others. And things changed. Things changed. But I started to learn the scripture and to and hear the scripture and try to understand the scripture. Had some good people around me that helped me. And then one day Jill broke her little toe. And we were back in bed again, laying in bed, and I had just read Mark, the end of Mark. These signs shall follow believers. They pick up any deadly thing, it won't hurt him or drink it, it's not gonna hurt him, and lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Now, I'm at a great Baptist church, and we prayed for people to be healed, but we didn't lay hands on people. Um, but they prayed for people to heal all the time. So I, I took the Bible literally, and I still try to to this day, because it's God's testimony. And it's filled with metaphors and allegories, all those wonderful things. But it's literally my God's testimony. And so I said, Jill, I just read this, and... It says, if I lay hands on you and pray, that God will heal you. And I, I'm glad the lights were out. She probably gave me the eye roll. And uh, that was long before the iPad. But I, So she finally agrees to it. And we both sit up in bed. And here I am with my fat. Well, I wasn't fat. Then, my body fat. And I just, I grabbed her foot and that toe. And I prayed for God to heal her toe because I believe God and I believe the scriptures. We always stay connected to God, listen closely, by faith. Faith that leads to love and obedience. We don't stay connected to God by works. Works is just fruit of our faith. And your works come and go, but your faith and your relationship with God stays forever, and it's constant. And I prayed, you know, of faith. And we laid back down. And then I asked them, how does it feel? How's your toe feel? She said, it hurts. <laughs> okay. You want to walk on it? No. <laughs> A few minutes later, how's your toe feel now? It hurts. You want to get up and walk on it? Bruce, I don't want to get up and walk on it. <laughs> I had a lot of faith with my wife, but I wasn't hurting. <laughs> um, 
And finally, she submitted just to appease me, I think, and she got up and stood up and took a few steps, and she limped, and then she took a few more, and then she started walking all around the room, and then she started to cry and said, Bruce, it's healed. And I went, it, it's healed? <laughs> and I got up, and we rejoiced, and we acknowledged God, and we gave him thanks. We gave him praise for being our God. And I was excited. I started calling people, even though it was late. And then... <laughs> I wanted to acknowledge God. I want to acknowledge Him every day and in everything. And so then I sat on the bed and I actually got frightened because I realized this is supernatural. And this is not a game. This is serious, Bruce. This is life or death. This is sickness or healing. And I said, you know, you, you got to take this serious, Bruce. And so, I don't know, how do you be serious and excited and joyful at the whole time? It's all these mix of emotions. It's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. We heard a sermon on tithing, and I'd seen it in the scriptures, and Jill and I talked about it. Yeah, well, there it is. Let's do it. Look, you know, we've got a gracious God. Um, I, I never worry about hearing about sermons on tithing. That doesn't bother me in the least. Um, because we started tithing because we heard it preached and we saw it in the scriptures. It was very clear. And we saw tithing as another way to acknowledge our God and to give him thanks and to give him praise. So I, you know, people can say what they want about money and church. And, uh, it doesn't bother me. And so we started to tithe. And next week, Jill got a promotion, got a pay raise. Hallelujah. And it didn't matter that in a couple of months, she was going to quit work uh, because our son was going to be born. And, um, uh, but it was just, the scriptures are real. The scriptures are true. The scriptures are inspired by God. God will fulfill his scriptures. God will fulfill his promises. Bruce, will we do it? You see, the biggest thing when I accepted Christ as my Savior was not, okay, this is what Christians do and Christians don't do. I've heard a lot of people talk about that. Oh, people think Christians got to make do this list, and there's a list of do's, and there's a list of don'ts. I've never related to that my whole life. That mean, didn't mean anything to me. I didn't think being a Christian meant keeping a list of things. What I realized and why I struggled so much against God and why I pushed back from him and why I wouldn't acknowledge him is because I didn't want to give up control of my life. Because I knew to accept Christ as my Savior and my Lord meant I gave up control. That I would have to die to self to live for him. I would have to pick up his cross and mine and identify with, with this Christ in death to a brand new life. Identify with him that he is in control. He is God, and I'm not. Even in my stupidity, looking at my life and my decisions in life and things, and I think, is this what you want to go on, Bruce? You making all the decisions all the time? Well, I'm not doing too bad. Oh, yeah? <laughs> And that was my struggle. Do I give up control 
to this God. And finally, I said, yes, he is God. I believe he loves me because of Jesus Christ. I want him to have control of my life. So for me, living drenched, I mean, God, you're in control. And wherever you lead me, whatever I'm going through, I started to learn the scriptures too and experience the scriptures just the way you have. John 16, 33, in this world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, Bruce, I've overcome the world. I've overcome everything they can do to you. Every experience you go through, everything that breaks your heart, everything that crushes you, everything that's trying to bring doubt into your mind, I've overcome every one of those. Will you walk with me? Will you be my disciple? Will you let me take care of you? And that was the decision. Can I trust him to take care of me? But yet, while I was yet a sinner and didn't want him to take care of me, he died for me. Took my sins and nailed them to the cross, like Colossians tells us. I can trust him. And he is so strong, he can overcome death. Jesus Christ reached into my heart and took the thing that was killing me, my sin and my rebellion against him, and washed it away by his blood, gave me a new heart, gave me a new life, gave me his spirit, made me co-heirs with him, brought me into his family that his Holy Spirit reminds me about that I'm in the family too, helps me understand the scriptures, getting through my stubborn mind and my will when I yield to him. And he wants to do the same thing for you. Do you want to live drenched? You got to die to self and let him give you a brand new heart, new life. And then he will never leave you or forsake you. He will provide for you. That's why I, tithing is not that big. He provides. He provides. And the greatest provision he's given me is, him, is himself. Because everything I need is in my Lord. And if I'm with him, he's better than Inspector Gadget. <laughs> he's got it all. Will you stand with me, please? We're going to worship a bit here. And obviously I could give you a, a lot more of what God has done. I would like to share sometime a story about how Ronnie and Margaret and I met and how we met Wayne um, back in 77. I remember when my brother Wade Hutchison committed his life to the Lord and the prayer that went up for him by his family. I'm so thankful, you know, Ronnie gave me a job here and to watch and look at the youth now and, the, and all the mission stuff that goes on and all that you guys do. Um, it just blesses my heart because I see God fulfilling his word over and over and over again. So that's the whole story about sin and about forgiveness and about death and about life and his spirit and to live an abundant life in him and having this God that will never leave you or forsake you. And so I share the story with you. If you've never given your life to Christ and given him control, now is your time. You've heard the story, and it's true. 
If you're a believer and have been holding on to some of your life, give it away. Give it away. He loves you and trusts you. So we're going to give you an opportunity to pray. And if those who are going to pray, come forward here. This is your choice right now. This is your time. You've heard the story. I want to ask you this morning, how are you going to acknowledge God this morning? I know many of you are just going to worship Him right now and acknowledge who He is. That's wonderful. Some of you don't know the Lord. It's your time. It's your opportunity to acknowledge Him as God, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. And any other prayer need you have, bring it to your God. And let another believer, another disciple of Christ, pray truth with you and be set free. Now is your time.